right, greetings to all of you, greetings to all of our campuses, we are so glad you are here. As most of you know, um, during this past fall, we as a church went through a 40-day experience together, 40 days of experiencing more of the Holy Spirit. It was a tremendous time for our church, and we wanted to let you know that we've created a website where anyone can go through a similar 40-day journey. Um, So this site includes all the weekly video teachings, as well as the small group guide and uh, all that information. And so if you know of someone that might be interested in experiencing that, or maybe you want to go back through it or whatever, um, you can go to moreofthespirit.com. That's the website, moreofthespirit.com. So I had an interesting thing happen to me um, last week that I'd love, I'd love to process with you. Nothing like getting input from several hundred of your friends. But uh, So here's what happened. I was laying in bed Thanksgiving morning and uh, had woken up and was just thinking about all that I was thankful for. My wife and my family and my home and job and friends. And my, my heart, as I was laying, my heart was very happy and, and content. It was, a, it was a cool, cool few moments that morning. So then we got up, and we were hanging out with uh, some family from out of town that were visiting, and, and someone got out, went out and, and got the newspaper, you know, the Thanksgiving morning newspaper, you know, the, the four-inch thick one, um, because of all the Black Friday and now, whatever, Thursday evening ads. And, and so we began to just kind of look through those ads, just sort of lightheartedly. Well, then within 10 minutes, I started noticing my heart was beating a little faster. You know, I saw these ads for tablets for $49, and I thought, man, maybe I need a tablet, even though I already have one or two. Um, And then I started looking at the Sports Authority ad, you know, with the North Face winter jackets, and I thought how my current jacket was so 2011, you know. And then I, um, <clears throat> then I saw the Best Buy ad and saw the PS4 and thought how our, our son Joshua, maybe he needed an upgrade from the PS3. And, and why shouldn't I just upgrade, you know, my, the iPhone I have for, to a 6 rather than the Dinosaur 5 that I have, you know. But something, something happened to me. Something had happened to me. That this heart that had been wonderfully joyful and peaceful and content just 15 minutes earlier suddenly felt unsettled, dissatisfied, and now with an urgent need to go shopping soon. So what, what happened to me? As I, as I thought about this later, I realized what happened. In that moment, I had contracted a virus of the heart a virus that is significantly more common than a cold and way more damaging. It's a virus that every one of us here is vulnerable to getting regularly. What is it? Discontentment. Discontentment is subtle and it moves in quickly, wreaking havoc wherever it goes. It can easily sneak into our marriage or our job our attitude toward our possessions or our looks or our clothing, and it robs us of joy and peace and life. Our hearts become a breeding ground for comparison and jealousy and negativity and self-hatred, nasty stuff. So how can we protect our hearts from this virus of discontentment? How can we instead cultivate the life-giving experience of contentment? Well, that's what we're going to be focusing on in this new teaching series that we're beginning today. In this season of Christmas, when we are especially vulnerable to this virus of discontentment, we want to talk about how we can cultivate the joy and peace of contentment. Our guide to contentment is a portion of a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to Timothy. Timothy was a protege of Paul's who lived in Ephesus 
Now, Ephesus at that time was a major center for travel and and commerce. The city had an area known as the Agora that was a major place for merchants and shopping. It was sort of the Park Meadows Mall of the day. Um, And so Timothy is is leading this small group of believers in Ephesus. And it's no surprise that Paul spends a good portion of this letter talking about their heart attitude toward money and possessions. And his focus is on this issue of contentment. We're going to be looking at 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 6 through 10, if you want to follow along there. We're going to be looking at that section today and then other sections in the weeks to come. So let me read this out loud, 1 Timothy 6, verses 6 through 10. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people, eager for money, have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. This is God's word. Now, while discontentment surfaces in various areas of our lives, one of the primary places, as Paul explains, is the area of money and possessions. If we can learn to be content in this area, it will overflow into all sorts of other areas in our lives. So notice again how Paul begins. He makes this incredibly powerful statement. Godliness with contentment is great gain. This word translated great gain is a financial term. It it, it refers to wealth. And so what Paul is saying is that true riches, true wealth, true life come from a heart that is content. Now the way Paul makes this point initially is by focusing our attention on the opposite. On the section we just read, he focuses on the opposite, on discontentment. He gives this very vivid picture of discontentment. What he does first is describe for us the root of discontentment. What is it that causes discontentment to be stirred up in our lives? Well, Paul is very clear on what this is. In these four verses, he gives us the answer three different times. Verse 9, those who want to get rich. Verse 10, for the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And then later in that same verse, some people eager for money have wandered from the faith. So what is the cause of discontentment? It is a heart that is longing for more money, more things. In fact, here's how I would articulate the cause of discontentment. Discontentment occurs when we set our heart on what we don't have. So discontentment occurs when we set our heart upon what we don't have. That's the issue. It's not about what we actually have or don't have. It is is totally about our heart, what our heart is set upon. Contentment has nothing to do with the size of our house, the size of the house we live in, or the salary we make, or the clothes we wear. It has nothing to do with that. Contentment is totally and completely a heart issue. Paul says here that when we set our heart upon money, when we love money, when we are eager for money, watch out. It will rob us of life and set us on a path that will bring pain and ruin. 
Now, this heart thing is so important for us to understand, and it's so easy for us to miss. And here's why it's so easy for us to miss. None of us think we have a problem with money. None of us here think we have a problem with money. No one thinks they have a problem with, with, with greed. See, we live in what I recently heard referred to as the land of Ur. The land of Ur. Here's the attitude in the land of Ur. I don't have a problem with money. But that person who lives in a bigger house than I do, they have a problem with money. See, I don't have a problem with money, but that person who drives a nicer car than me, they have a problem. See, that's the land of Ur. We look at people who make more money than us or who live in a nicer neighborhood than us or drive a nicer car than us, and we conclude they have a problem with money, but not me. See, they love money, but not me. That's what makes this issue so significant and so destructive. We have a really hard time seeing it in ourselves. We can see it in everyone else. We have a really hard time seeing it in ourselves. See, all we have to do is find someone who spends more money than we do or makes more money than we do or wears nicer clothes than we wear and subconsciously we conclude we're off the hook. We're off the hook. But we're not off the hook. (laughs) We're not off the hook. This has nothing to do with how much or how little we have. This is all about the heart. Discontentment occurs when we set our heart upon what we don't have. Someone once asked millionaire John Rockefeller, how much money is enough? You remember his answer? Just a little bit more. Just a little bit more. That's how our hearts work. His answer was so profound and so honest because that's exactly how our hearts work. Enough is never enough. Ten years ago, we look at our income, we thought, oh, we were, we, you, know, if we, you know, if we thought we were making a day, we were making back then, we thought, oh, then we have arrived, right? Well, now we are today and we're thinking, oh, if I just made that, then I'd really have it made. We always want a little bit more. Someone once said that wealth is like seawater. The more we drink, the thirstier we become. Wealth is like seawater. The more we drink, the thirstier we become. I mean, honestly, this season of the year that we're in right now, it, you know, the Christmas season, it, just, it often breeds this feeling of discontentment in our hearts. Right? It just breeds this feeling of discontentment. Whether we're watching Hallmark movies about the perfect Christmas in these families and look at our situation, or in this whole area of, of, of things and possessions, it breeds this this time of year. For a few weeks now, my family's been um, asking me for a Christmas list, Christmas ideas for me. And honestly, at one level, I don't, I don't need anything. I don't need or want anything. I mean, I have food, I have shelter, I have transportation, I have clothing. But I got to come up with something, right? So what do I do? Well, what I usually do, what I usually ask for is clothing, especially shirts and sweaters. You know, I love that stuff. I love walking through the men's section at Gap or Kohl's or Macy's or whatever. And, you know, after all, I, I can't wear the same shirt too often when I teach on the weekends, right? So... Now, now, before I officially put this on my list, I had an idea. I had a thought. I wonder how many shirts I currently own. So just out of curiosity, I looked in my closet this past week, and I counted how many shirts I have. 
I have 60 shirts that are hanging in the closet. That's long and short sleeves, so okay, give me a break a little bit, but <laughs> 60 are hanging in my closet. Then, then there's an additional 33 sweaters and pullovers that are folded up on a shelf, right? Sweaters and kind of pullovers. And then I have about 40 t-shirts. I counted actually 40, exactly 40 t-shirts in a couple drawers. I have 133 shirts. Now, before you judge me, <laughs> I encourage you to do the same thing. Count the number of shirts or pairs of shoes or pants, or jackets, or tools, or whatever your favorite thing is. When is enough enough? One would think that 133 shirts would be enough. But all it takes is one stroll through Eddie Bauer, and my heart can be stirred to want more of something I already have. I'm no longer content with my current reality. I have set my heart on something that I don't have. Now, I'm, I'm not trying to, you know, come down on Christmas gifts. I'm not saying that. I'm simply pointing out how easily our hearts can get this virus. It can happen so quickly. How quickly our hearts can move from contentment to discontentment in a matter of minutes. Minutes. And this is the atmosphere in which we live. I mean, our culture is a society of consumption, not contentment. Our, our, our culture is this society of consumption. And it relentlessly is trying to move us right along with it. I mean, if we don't stop and pay attention to what's happening, our hearts will be swept along in this. Buying things we don't need with money we don't have to impress people we don't like. I borrowed that quote, but it's a pretty good one. It is true. Which leads to the second thing that Paul focuses on regarding discontentment, and that is the results of discontentment. The results of discontentment. Look again at verse 9. Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. His language here is so vivid. When our hearts are focused on what we don't have, right? When we find ourselves desiring more money, more stuff, we are headed down a very dangerous path. He initially describes it as a temptation and a trap. That's, that's how this works, right? Vivid language here. The language used here describes like a, a noose, something that controls us. It binds us. It holds us. And that's really the issue here. As someone has said, the challenge as it relates to money, the challenge is to possess money without it possessing us. That's the challenge for all of us here. It's to possess money without it possessing us. And that's no easy task because money is always seeking to possess us, to control us. doesn't matter how much we make or not. That's not the issue. It's always seeking to possess us, to control us. In Luke 12, we see this really, I think, vivid picture of this. Luke 12, Jesus is teaching this large crowd of people. And at one point, Someone in the crowd says to Jesus, verse 13 of Luke 12, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. 
Now, Jesus was not talking about anything related to this, okay? So this person just says this. And do you hear the tone of this statement? This is not a question. (laughs) He's not asking for advice. This is a demand. Jesus, tell my brother to give me my share. I mean, here is this guy in the crowd. We don't know who he is. Some ordinary guy in the crowd demanding that the Lord of the universe do his bidding regarding a family squabble. Are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? But you see, that's exactly what a love of money will do to us. It will turn us, it turns us into these self-centered, self-absorbed, controlling, demanding people. Who, who expect everything to revolve around them. Here's a guy who was in the middle of a family dispute, and all of a sudden, it was all about that. It was all about him getting what he, whatever, what, what he deserved. See, whether, whether we like it or not, whether we like it or not, the fact of the matter is money changes us. It cha- having money changes us. It impacts how we behave. It impacts how we look at other people. It impacts how we think. It turns us into self-absorbed people. It does. You'd think, you would think that the more money we have, the more free and generous we would become. But that's not the case. Studies have repeatedly shown that the more people make and have, the less generous they are. The smaller, the more people make, the smaller percentage of their income they give away. Statistics bear this out. Smaller percentage of their income they give away, the more they make. I mean, think about that for a moment. We think having more automatically makes us more generous. It doesn't. In fact, it actually has the opposite effect. It has the opposite effect. I was talking with someone who worked as a, as a waitress in a particular city where a very well-known, wealthy person lives, one of the wealthiest people on the planet. She had actually waited on this person. So I asked her, you know, the question, is he a good tipper? Um, and she said, no, he's the worst. The worst, the cheapest tipper. Money does something to us. It does something to us, which is why right after this guy demands that Jesus solve this family financial dispute, immediately Jesus says, watch out, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. That's verse 15. I mean, this is one of the strongest warnings we have in scripture from Jesus. Some of this, one of the strongest warnings, watch out, he says. And we read this stuff and we think, oh yeah, you said, watch out, be on your guard again. No, I think he probably was almost shouting at that point. His voice was being raised. This is serious. Watch out for greed. And again, we think, oh, I don't have a struggle with greed. I love how Andy Stanley defines greed. He says, greed is the assumption that it's all for my consumption. Greed is the assumption that it's all for my consumption. That's greed. It's assuming that everything I have, doesn't matter even how much it is, everything I have is for me to consume. And that heart posture is incredibly dangerous. Now again, our tendency is to think that we don't have a problem with greed. 
Other people do, but we don't. So let me give, a little, give us a little diagnostic example of how greed manifests itself. How many of you have been to Chuck E. Cheese? Just raise your hand. Okay. Almost all of us have. Okay. Chuck E. Cheese. What, here's the question. What do we adults do with the tokens we purchase for our child? We keep a stash for ourselves. And, and we're not giving them to our kids. Why? Because we're trying to help them get tickets, right? So we're bowling and probably cheating a little bit on that ski bowl thing or whatever. And we're doing deal or no deal. And we're, you know, we're kind of hogging our way into the basketball shooting thing. We're pushing little kids out of the way or whatever. See, I mean, what in the world possesses us to behave this way? It's getting those tickets, so then we accumulate like 6,000, right? And we take the 20 that our child got and we put all this together and we run over to the counter to see what we can get. And we discover all of that effort resulted in our child getting a cheap plastic airplane that breaks on the way home. What was that about? Seriously, what was that about? From a distance, it is totally irrational. All the intensity, all the effort, all the focus, all the accumulating for a cheap prize. It's totally irrational, and yet we still do it. And let's not kid ourselves. That isn't simply a Chuck E. Cheese reality. That's exactly how we live our lives as it relates to money and things. We are on an earnest pursuit that we may say is for noble and just causes, but often, it's really about us. We need more. We need a bigger house. We need a nicer car. We need a bigger retirement, et cetera, et cetera. And the deal is, here, here's the deal. It changes us. Just like in Chuck E. Cheese, we think about how we behave. We're like, did I really do that? Why was I so caught up in that? But it changes us. It impacts us. We start doing things that are irrational. In verse 9, Paul uses the word foolish to describe part of the dynamic of this. A love of money can cause us to make really foolish decisions. Like taking out a mortgage that we can't afford. Forcing both of us to have to work full time so that we can enjoy this house with our family. But we're never around as a family. Why? Because we're too busy working. That's irrational. That is irrational. That's foolish. But we do it. We do it. Or, or we spend hours looking at catalogs or, or running to various stores trying to find the perfect gift for our child. And when we give it to them, they play with it for like 30 minutes and never look at it again. Because what our child really wants is for us just to sit down with them and be with them. But we don't have time to do that. Why? Because we're trying to so busy you know, trying to buy things to make them happy. It's irrational. It's foolish. Or we load up our credit card with purchases we can't afford. And then we pay 18% interest on that. But we just keep piling it up, loading up because we can make the monthly payment, Right? But then maybe we, have a, 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 we take a pay cut at work and now we can't afford the payments. And, and so suddenly we have creditors calling us and people threatening to shut off our electricity. Very quickly, we realize all that purchasing isn't nearly as much fun now. It starts ruining our lives. We find ourselves fighting more and more with our spouse 
over money. We find ourselves losing sleep, worrying about how we're going to pay these bills. See, this is why Jesus and Paul do not mince words on this stuff. The love of money will lead us down paths that are not fun, paths that are extremely painful. In fact, look again at verse 10. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. No, he doesn't say money's evil. He says the love of, that's the problem here, what we set our heart on. The love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Some people, eager for money, have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Wow, they've wandered from their faith. Wandered from their faith. Jesus said, you can't love God and money at the same time, right? We will be devoted to one and we'll despise the other. So if we are loving money, guess who we're not loving? God. Wander from our faith. That's what happens. And notice that last phrase in verse 10. They have pierced themselves with many griefs. Man, that's where this leads. An increase in stress, in anxiety, in relational tension, in in comparison, in jealousy. If money brings happiness, the richest people would be the happiest people, but they're not. I mean, does, does Hollywood strike you as a place with lots of happy people? No. Discontentment will eventually destroy us, robbing us of the life that God desires for us. So what can we do to protect our hearts from this virus? What can we do to cultivate contentment? That's what we're going to focus on in the rest of this teaching series. But I wanted to take a couple minutes and briefly mention two God-given antibodies that can help us resist discontentment in our lives. Okay, briefly mentioned here, we'll kind of unpack these maybe in the next weeks, the weeks to come here, but two things I wanted to hit on just at the end here. First, first antibody is gratitude. Gratitude. Over and over again in Scripture, we are commanded to be thankful. First Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 18. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ. Give thanks in all circumstances. Now, why is this a big deal to God? Why is it a big deal? Because he knows what it can do to our hearts. Let me ask it this way. Would you rather be around someone who complains all the time or someone who is thankful? And why is that? It's because discontented people spread their negativity. Initially, our complaining feels kind of good. But you know what? It ultimately begins to shrink our hearts. It drains our joy. There is nothing like a little bit of complaining to dampen our spirit. And the deal is, this is a choice we have. We can choose to focus our hearts on how God has blessed us, or we can choose to focus our heart on what we don't have. The choice is ours every moment of every day. I drive a 13-year-old 
Honda CRV. A few years ago, excuse me, a few weeks ago, our car was in the shop, and, and so the Honda dealership gave me a loaner, a 2014 CRV. I think they do that on purpose. I'm convinced they do. So, so I'm driving around in this, in what to me is kind of a luxury vehicle, right? With the camera, when you back up, you see the camera of where you're backing up, and the great gas mileage, and the smooth ride, and heated seats, you know, and I'm loving it. First day I get back into my car and drive to work. I had this wrestling match. I had a bit of a wrestling match going on in my heart. Was I going to focus on how bumpy the ride was and how I actually have to turn my head to see where I'm backing up and how I don't have this, you know, leather seats that heat my rear end, you know, on cold mornings? Or was I going to say, God, I am so thankful I have a car that works. There are lots of people in this city that don't have a car. And they're riding the bus today. Or they're walking somewhere today. Or they're riding a bicycle in the cold. Thank you, God, for this car that you have provided. Thank you that it's totally paid off. Hallelujah. Thank you that heat comes out of these vents. Thank you. That one decision made during a drive to work can completely change my heart attitude, my level of joy. Completely change it. See, here, here's something I would challenge all of us to do. Here's a little assignment. Pay attention to what you complain about. Just kind of pay attention to what you complain about. What are, what are the things we complain about? Our cell phone coverage? Our rear window defroster doesn't work. Our DVR isn't recording properly. We had to wait in line for five minutes at the ATM. Our waitress was too slow. Or they put whole milk into our venti half soy non-fat decaf double shot Americano order at Starbucks. Whole milk, can you believe that? So think about the things we complain about in light of this statistic. Almost half, nearly half the world lives on less than $2.50 a day. Half the world lives on less than $2.50 a day. That's less than one drink at Starbucks. Way less. Do we really have anything to complain about? I mean, do we really have anything to complain about? We should be the most thankful people on this planet. Not only for the, the bountiful material blessings God has provided us, we should be the most thankful people on the planet because of what Jesus has provided for us, right? Even if we were living on $2.50 a day, we could still be thankful to him for his mercy, his love, his grace that he has poured out into our lives through his death on the cross and his resurrection. Choosing gratitude, and it is a choice, choosing gratitude will protect our heart from the virus of discontentment in our lives. It will. It's a choice we make. A second God-given antibody that can protect our hearts from discontentment is generosity. Generosity. Remember the root of discontentment? We talked about this earlier. The root of discontentment is to set our heart on what we don't have. 
So when we set our heart upon what we don't have, it causes us to spend more on ourselves, to hoard, to cling to things, right? It it, it results in increasing comparison and jealousy and anxiety, all those things we already talked about. So Jesus, when he talks about money, he invites us to set our heart on something else. Listen to his words in Luke 12, beginning in verse 29. And do not set your heart on what you will eat or drink. Do not worry about it. For the pagan world runs after all such things. And your father knows that you need them. But seek his kingdom and these things will be given to you as well. Do not be afraid, little flock. For your father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the poor. Provide purses for yourselves that will not wear out. A treasure in heaven that will never fail. Where no thief comes near and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. See, notice what Jesus is saying. Don't set your heart on these temporal things. Don't on what you have or what you don't have. No, set your heart where? On the kingdom. In other words, set your heart on what is on God's heart, what he values. And when you do that, you are freed to be generous, to sell some possessions, to give to those in need. And by doing so, guess what? You are storing up treasure in heaven. See, Jesus wants us to set our hearts where? On heaven. But is that where our hearts are set? Do we really believe this talk about how giving stores up treasure in heaven? You tell me, statistics reveal that Christians, on average, give away 3% of their income. A little less, actually, than 3% of their income. We spend 97% on ourselves. You tell me, do we really believe in heavenly treasures? Do we really believe in heavenly treasures? Is our heart set upon storing up treasure in heaven? No, our heart is set on things here, spending or saving as much as we can for ourselves, which just breeds discontentment, and it closes our hearts to the needs around us. This is why Jesus says the way to break this cycle, the way to release the hold that our possessions and money have upon us is by choosing to be generous. Letting go, letting go more and more of that 97% that we cling to and spend on ourselves and instead setting our hearts upon the kingdom, seeking first God's heart. See, here's the wonder of God's plan. Here's the wonder of God's plan. When we choose to be content with what we have, it frees our hearts to be discontent with what other people don't have. See, when when we choose to be content with what we have, it frees our hearts to be discontent with what others don't have. In other words, contentment frees us to use our things to help others in need. And that choice releases unbelievable joy into our hearts and into the lives of others. I mean, this is the story of Mr. Grinch, right? 
This is the story of the Grinch. Remember how, how Dr. Seuss described him early in the story? His heart was what? Two sizes, two small, right? For many of us, our hearts are very similar. Discontentment is shrinking our hearts. So what was it that changed the Grinch's heart? Remember? It was hearing the people in Whoville singing, even when their Christmas gifts had been taken away. They still sang. They were still content. And that joy penetrated, that contentment, that joy penetrated the darkest heart. And suddenly everything changed for the Grinch. And everything can change for us as well. Contentment is that powerful. When we choose to set our hearts on the kingdom, expressing gratitude to our king and demonstrating generosity to him, it changes everything. It changes everything. Let's pray together. Holy Spirit, we invite you to come right now. You've been speaking to our hearts. And, and we admit, Lord, in this society that's all about consumption, in this time of year that's all about consumption, it's kind of hard to hear some of these things. And you tell us in your word, it is really hard to see greed in ourselves. We see it in other people, but we have a hard time seeing it in ourselves. But I pray you would open our eyes to see, to be honest, to be honest, ruthlessly honest about where we're at in this area. Lord, help us see where we set our heart on things we don't have. And we all do this probably multiple times a day, Lord, this temptation, the car or tools our neighbor has or spouse or whatever. Lord, we, we so easily set our heart on what we don't have. And we acknowledge, we acknowledge how, the path, how dangerous a path this leads us down. Because when we set our heart on what we don't have or even what we do have, when we set our heart there, enough is never enough. We're never really satisfied. We're never really content. And we start pursuing things and, and doing things that are irrational, that are foolish. And it's all because we have set our heart on what we don't have. And so would you forgive us, Lord? I pray you would open our eyes to see our discontentment, to see even what we complain about to look at those things from a different perspective. So give us the grace to do that. And I want, I want to pray as well, Lord, that you would be stirring within us gratitude, that we would choose regularly choose to be thankful for what we have. 
So give us the courage to do that, to make that choice. And we know it's rooted in what you've done for us on the cross. You, you gave your all for us. And so we thank you for that incredible gift and for all the blessings you've given us. Help us to cultivate gratitude. And Lord, we also pray you'd help us cultivate generosity. Those numbers are just staggering, Lord, and yet they're so obvious. 3%, 97%. It is so obvious what we're setting our hearts upon. And so I pray you would help us, not out of guilt or shame or condemnation. No, help us out of grace, the grace of your generosity towards us to respond with generosity towards others and towards you. We, we want our hearts to be like Grinch at the last part of that story, not where our hearts are shrinking into more self-absorption and complaining and all of that, we pray that our hearts would be growing, growing in grace. Only you can do that in us. And so we pray for that, Lord. Help us grow in contentment. Thank you, Lord, for this opportunity right now just to worship you with all of our hearts. So why don't we do that? Let's stand. Please stand wherever you are at our campuses here. We have intercessors with red lanyards that'll be scattered around the room. They would love to pray with you. If you have a need, you can slip out of your seat during a song and go to them, and they would love to lift you up in prayer. So, Father, set us free now to worship, to thank you, to praise you for who you are. We love you. Thank you for being such an amazing Savior, being so generous to us. We love you. Set us free to worship you.